Hey, Collective Church, Pastor Ryan here. Hope this finds you doing well. I want to take a moment and welcome those of you that are jumping in, that are new to Collective. Maybe this is your first time with us through this online service. Uh, Welcome. We're excited to have you uh, in this season and time age that we're in where so much is over digital, over screens. Uh, It's not ideal, but it is what we have. And so we're grateful for uh, even just the gift of technology that we're able to do stuff like this. And so for those of you, again, that are new, checking things out, welcome. For those of you that are members uh, of, of Collective, that you see Lily, you know who Lily was, and you get all excited. Uh, wherever you are in that spectrum, we're excited to have you here with us today. So a couple little announcements before we get into the teaching today. The first is for those of you that are new, maybe you're looking to learn a little bit more about Collective Church. You're learning to get connected to uh, maybe other Christians or just Christians begin to have conversations around Jesus and what it means to follow him. Uh, If that's you and you want to get connected, there's a little link that's going to pop up in the chat that you can click on. And that's a way for you to give your email. And we always joke, this isn't for us to send you like weird email subscriptions. We're getting money off of like selling your email or anything like that. This is for someone who's a part of collective to reach out to you, to set up a time to chat. Normally this would be at a coffee shop or grabbing lunch or something like that. And right now we're just doing that over a phone call or zoom, just a way to say, Hey, see one of those faces, ask questions, get to know each other. Along with that, if you are new or again on the spectrum, if you've, you're a member, you've been here since the beginning, since day one, this week is a neighborhood dinner week. And so those neighborhood dinners are now happening over Zoom as usual. And so if you aren't a part of a neighborhood dinner, uh, you can again hit on one of those uh, little links that are gonna show up in the chat. We'll get you connected to one and uh, we can make that make that all happen. And so the big idea with those neighborhood dinners is not uh, that we're all sitting down watching each other eat, though that's what a lot of us do. For us and my family, it works best that you know me or, or Aaron, my wife, we prep dinner, we sit down at the table and then we you know open the Zoom and we're talking to our, you know, our neighborhood dinner, our friends, uh, as, in, uh, as we're eating our dinner. For others, um, it may be after dinner or before dinner or just dropping in for a few minutes and saying, hey, wherever you're at, uh, we would just admonish you, encourage you to stay connected to the neighborhood dinner, even if it's just a quick drop in. Hey, things are crazy right now, but I just want to say hey and, uh, and, and see how you guys are doing and then, and then dropping off as you need. Uh, you don't have to be there for the whole thing. <laughs> so anyway, all that to say, neighborhood dinner's coming up. For those of you that are looking to connect, uh, you can hit on the link. And then finally, uh, for those of you that are committed members of Collective, I just want to say and continue to say thank you for your continued generosity to this community, that it is your uh, regular, sacrificial, cheerful giving to our community that allows us to one, not only put on services like this each week, but also to uh, encourage the work and, and benefit the work that we're doing on the West Side and also to partner with other ministries that are doing incredible work uh, on the West Side and then around the world. And so as you give, thank you so much. Maybe you, because of work or something like that over the past year, you took a break from giving. Just encourage you uh, to, to see what, what does it look like to be uh, generous, to be sacrificial, to be cheerful in this season. And so again, there's a link there in the chat where you can click on that as you get rolling. But with all that being said, that's all the announcements that I have for you. Welcome to everyone. If you're new, hit that connect link. Let's get to know one another. We've got neighborhood dinner coming up this week. So make sure you drop in and say, hey, and then uh, just thanking you for your continued generosity. So here we are in our second week in our teaching series in the gospel of Mark that we're calling Discovering Jesus. 
The series began last week with Jesus and his disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee. And alongside this, you know, they go across the sea, the storm comes up. Jesus calms the storm. It's this incredible story of God's power, Jesus's power over nature. But at the end of the story is this question the disciples ask to one another, who then is this? Who is Jesus? It's a question that runs, that Mark has constructed and as a narrative, he's built out these moments and elements of Jesus's ministry and life all around that question that gets introduced last week. Who is Jesus? We're gonna look at today. It's, it's an aspect of who is Jesus. The following week after that, next week is who is Jesus? And for that, more who is Jesus. Mark is putting together all of these stories that reflect on the, the identity of Jesus before we get to chapter eight, where Jesus asks Peter and the disciples, he asks us, who do you say that I am? And so we're, we're trying to follow Mark's, Mark's line of thought here as he's saying, he's giving to us the answer to the question, who is Jesus? He's helping us discover Jesus. And so today, Mark chapter five is where we begin in verse one. We're gonna go all the way through verse 20. And so let's read this together and then we'll get into it. Mark five. <clears throat> they, being Jesus and the disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, cutting himself with stones. And when this man saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, crying out with a loud voice. He said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I assure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked him, what's your name? He replied, my name is Legion for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering 2000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen seeing this fled and told in the city and in the country. And all the people came to see what this is that had happened. And so they came to Jesus and there next to him, they saw the demon possessed man, the one who had the legion now sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it began to describe to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And so they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. But he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. 
So what we've just read here is a story of what we could call Hollywood proportions. It's like Jesus coming, stepping out of this boat has entered into the upside down with this zombie-like figure, conversations with demons and the computer-generated swine taking a high dive off of the cliffside. But in all the spectacle of this story, I don't want us to, I would say we can't miss Mark's priority in all of this is answering the question, who is Jesus? It's that question from last week on the disciples' lips. Who then is this? And then Mark gives us this story. For Mark, this supernatural story, as crazy as it might be, is crucial, not just for the disciples then, but for you and me in discovering Jesus. Now, the odds are there's about three groups of us watching right now, three groups of us attending and and looking over this story. The first would see this story and tend to have a fairly similar worldview to the one that we've just heard about. Yeah, this is real. This kind of stuff happens. This is not strange to us. I mean, it's a strange story, but the concept, the idea of unclean spirits and demons, this isn't strange. This, This is in some way how we perceive the world. There's others of you who this is, maybe you are a Christian or you aren't, but this is the weird part of Christianity. This is the thing that you can't seem to get your head around. Unclean spirits and demons and, you know, I am legion kind of stuff. Is This is a little strange to me. And then third, there's a, there's a group of you that maybe you're new. Maybe you don't identify as a Christian and you go, see, this is it. This is why I just can't do the Jesus thing. This silly, primitive nonsense is you've got, these unrelated events of some guy who clearly has some kind of mental illness and then something happens where these pigs get spooked. And of course, there's all this, this superstition nonsense that we have evolved as a society beyond. And so to go back to this Jesus stuff is a waste of time. Wherever you're at, my hope is today we might begin to answer some of those questions. Because as Americans, we live within this strange contradiction that happens within all of us. And sometimes each of us simultaneously You see, all of us, as we lean into seeing the world in the view of the secular, the idea that really life in reality is, it all comes down to atoms and molecules and what can be measured with a telescope, a microscope, with math or science, that that is the real stuff of life. But then within American culture, on the very same side is the spiritual but not religious that kind of comes in line with all of us as we talk about things having a negative or positive energy, talking about some kind of spiritual substance to experience as we talk about transcendence. We talk about engaging or interacting with spiritual entities or energies or even personalities. Within American culture, it just seems like we hold both of these two right, even sometimes within ourselves. Atheists who charge their crystals, right? There's a a strange, well, which one is it? Are you only leaning into what can be measured and seen explicitly, or do you have some kind of hold of there being a spiritual essence, an unseen reality to this world? And LA, man, LA is such a mix of these two happening side by side, isn't it? is we want to claim only in the science. We want to claim only what we can measure, only in what can be scientifically proven. And yet we hold out, we talk about certain spaces or things feeling haunted or strange or off and we can't really explain why, right? We get whether palm reading or horoscopes, which there's no science in, but yet 
we claim, we're just saying we live in this contradiction. So what I want to do today is just spend our time this morning letting Mark invite us into those sorts of questions. What is the worldview that the Bible sets forward regarding this spiritual stuff? Is it purely the material? Is it this kind of hyper-spirituality? What is going on here to kind of move out of the contradiction that we go through as Americans? We're going to be looking at what Mark is doing in this story, which again, to come back, this is all part of Mark's movement in discovering Jesus. To make it simple this week, instead of, you know, we, we divide up the verses and we make it all clean. And this week is just two, two things we're going to look at. Mark is telling, giving us an eyewitness account, a story of revelation and response. Revelation and response. We're going to look at this story as a revelation of who Jesus is, maybe in a way that we hadn't seen before. And then we're going to look at how Mark sets before us three different responses to this revelation of Jesus. Doing what I think Mark wants us to, asking which of these responses is mine. So with that being said, I'm going to pray for our time together if you join me. And uh, if you want to, the notes are also there in the chat. And so you can uh, pull those up and, and follow along if, if you so please. But let's pray. Let's ask for the Spirit to speak through the scriptures today. Oh, Heavenly Father, uh, this is a moment in which we live that there is so much darkness and chaos and suffering and injustice that it can lead us thinking and wondering and trying to find a solution, the solution. Asking what is within our power to fix and to change. And stories like this bring us back to the reality that there is something going on in this world that behind the injustice and suffering that there is some sort of darkness that must be confronted. And so my prayer today is that we might reveal Jesus as the one who has come to confront and liberate us from that darkness, that you might help us to see the world like Jesus does, and you might help us to respond to Jesus out of the power that we see within him to receive him as our king, to receive him as our savior and liberator. And we pray, amen. So again, I'm gonna keep repeating it because by the time I get tired of it, you guys are hearing it for the first time sometimes, is again, what is Mark doing in this, in this, air, this section of Mark? Is it's all revolving around that question, who is Jesus? It's what the disciples asked at the end of last week's teaching. And so it's no surprise that what we just read over, right in the middle of the story, though the disciples didn't have the answer to who then is this, we find someone identifying Jesus for who he is. Surprisingly, the, the disciples didn't know who he was. The demons do. What in the middle of the text, what was right there in the middle of the story, the identification of Jesus? Did you catch it? I'm sure you did. Right there in verse seven, as we find the man with this legion, this demon, falls down crying out with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the most high God, son of the most high God. This is a continued pattern in Mark's gospel of demons having some kind of insight into the identity of Jesus that the rest of the people don't. Back in chapter one, verse 24, this demonized man shows up and he calls out Jesus, calls him the Holy One of God. So, but what's up here with, they don't call him the Holy One of God. There's a new title that's given to Jesus. Son of the most high God. Now let's just slow down and read and ask the questions. This is what good Bible reading is all about. I say this all the time. 
slowing down and asking questions. Maybe you've heard of Jesus being called the son of God. I mean, that was the introduction back in the gospel is beginning. Mark one, verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. But here we don't have the son of God, do we? What do we have? We have some added adjectives. Son of the most high God. Some more defining, he's filling this out, it seems like. So what does it mean that he's the most high God or that Jesus is the son of the most high God? Most high, what is this? Is it like, Snoop Dogg of the heavens? Like what is going on? Dad joke, I had to throw it in. What, what is going on here? The most high God. Okay, what we get into is this is just a good example I, of asking questions because the reality is, is when you read this or when we just read this a moment ago is you probably, I'm willing to bet lunch. I don't know, maybe don't hold me to that. But that, that you read right past son of the most high God. You just kind of read over that. Son of the most high God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus, God, you know, son of God, whatever stuff. You read past that. And, and we got to ask questions about this because the most high God, this language here seems to be quite important. The most high God, this is the one time in all of Mark's gospel that he uses this title. One, it's being said by a demon. If somebody gets into the spiritual reality, it would probably be a spiritual being, right? And then this is right after Mark's story of the disciples asking, who is Jesus? So son of the most high God, whatever this most high God and him being the son of that most high God is, it must be fairly important to the story. So what does it mean? It's a title that's used repeatedly and regularly throughout Jesus's Bible, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. One example, Psalm 97 verse nine says this, for you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. You see Psalm 97 gives the purpose here, the purpose of this title, most high God. It is a title of comparison. To call him the most high God is one of comparing him to the rest of all the gods, that he is above all the gods as Psalm 97 says here. Now, all the gods, what in the world is going on here? He doesn't say all the idols. He says gods, and it's this Hebrew, we don't, you know, you always get into this, this is what you get with me. This Hebrew word is the Hebrew word Elohim. It's, it's translated as, as gods, lowercase g, gods here, but it's the same word that God is Elohim. It's, a, it's a talking about spiritual beings of which God is the supreme spiritual creator being who is worthy of all respect and honor and worship. And yet for many of us, even if we're Christians, our worldview of reality tends to be there's, you know, God up there, Maybe if we're really orthodox, it's the Trinity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then humans down here. And like angels and demons and maybe, maybe devil. But like we, we, we tend to think though in the very two-part system way of seeing the world. But this is not the way that Jesus or the Jewish scriptures or that Israel or that Christians throughout history or even globally today have seen the world. In fact, the story of scripture is one of a parallel story of the creator God's earthly and what we could call spiritual or heavenly partners. The gods are these spiritual beings that's being referred to here. And though humans and, and whatever, you know, this language of Elohim, the God, these spiritual beings were meant to be partners with God. They are now partnered against God. That this was all kicked off and led by this original deceit of humans through one of these spiritual beings. It's, the Bible tends to put forward as the leader, what's called the Satan or the serpent or the devil. 
You didn't know we were going to go here today, did you? You probably didn't know you were going to go here, but as soon as you read the text. So the language that the Old Testament uses of gods, of uh, spirits, of the Satan, of um, even idols being a little, you know, clay or wood or stone thing was not just a clay or wood or stone thing. It was connected to some kind of spiritual being in some way. So Baal, Asherah, Marduk, the gods of the nations were seen as not just being not things, but actual spiritual beings with actual spiritual power. So this is the whole worldview of Jesus and the early church is that this is not a two-part system of reality, but one that is imbued with this parallel though unseen storyline that has import and impact on the way that we live our lives down here. So the language that comes into the New Testament is that of unclean spirits. So the gods in the Old Testament are talked about as being unclean spirits or demons or the devil or the Satan or the powers or spiritual forces of evil. It uses the metaphor of beasts or dragons in the book of Revelation. All of these metaphorical languages all coming together is trying to pin and put a name on these spiritual reality that is personal darkness that's at work within the world that though was meant to be partners with God that has fallen and taken humanity with them. But what does this partnership look like? What does this actually, how does this play out within our world? Because most often it doesn't, it doesn't look like, you know, pea soup and revolving heads, right? When, when these kind of powers come in. Psalm 82 is a great example of how the gods actually work in the world. And it's going to surprise you. I promise you, it's going to surprise you. Psalm 82, the most high God condemns the other spiritual beings that have rebelled against him, the gods. In Psalm 82, verses two and four, uh, I don't have this on the slide. So you just have to listen closely. Psalm 82 says this, he's speaking to the gods, just this. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. This sounds like something from our justice series, doesn't it? And that's precisely the point. Within the story of scripture, evil and injustice is more than just what stupid humans do to each other that behind in partnership and empowering human injustice and evil, there is a spiritual dynamic at work through it and behind it. And that these spiritual beings, whatever language you wanna use here, the gods, or we'll just use demons and unclean spirits here, is that what's going on is that these beings are literally hell-bent on taking humans as that divine image of God, as the reflection and representation of God in this world and turning them back, using their forming and filling creational power that God has given them not to make the world a good and better place, but to bring chaos and destruction on themselves, on one another and on all of creation. And so though humans are responsible for our sin and for our decisions, there is a play, there is a work that we are both, um, we are both responsible for our decisions. And yet at the same time, there's a Stockholm syndrome-esque reality. There is a, like a child soldier that is still responsible for what it has done, what they have done, but yet has been so co-opted by evil men to do this work. That this is the story of, of, of reality that the scriptures set forward, one that we have to deal with, that there is a parasitic evil at work within this world that seeks to take what is good and bend it 
into darkness. Some of you think this is crazy, but you've experienced this. Have you ever had an idea pop into your head? And that idea keeps hitting you. It's like dripping water in your head. And you go, at first, no, ugh, no, I, never, I would never talk that way. I'd never do something like that. I'd never think that. No, no. And then over time, no. And you go, well, you know, well. And then, and then the well moves to like, yeah, okay, yeah. And you, 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 you know, entertain the idea or the thought or speaking this way. And then you do it. And then immediately after or a week after, it's nothing but regret. How in the world did I get here? I, I would never have said yes to this. It's you, but it's not you. This is the dynamic that the scriptures see at work within humanity is we're responsible for that decision-making. And yet there is something that is bending the human heart beyond just what mo how mom and dad raised me into a direction of chaos and darkness. And so to bring it back to this story and the man here, is I believe that the man that's here being possessed by these unclean spirits is an explicit example of the, of the condition of all of humanity someone who has been hijacked by parasitic evil, someone who's been deceived, someone that's been enslaved, someone that is simultaneously empowered, that he can break off all of these binds and shackles, and yet he is powerless to get out of this affliction. He is abused and is abusing himself. He is naked and ashamed is what we find later when we find that he's clothed is that he was naked. Luke's account of this story makes it evident in the beginning that he's naked. Someone that's crying out all night long, the emotional distress, the isolation, the living among the tombs and the mountains. He's living in the land of death. He's just like this zombie, this half dead of a human. It's the picture and portrait of what humanity looks like in its partnership and enslavement to evil. Even more than that, not just humanity at large, the man is a picture and story of you and me apart from Jesus, with the volume turned up to 11. It is a trajectory of where humanity goes. I was having a conversation this week with a friend who doesn't identify as a Christian. And we were just talking through all of the news and waves and waves of suffering and injustice and brokenness, both outside there in the world at a political level, at a, at a social level, relational level, and then even at individual level, what's going on within my own heart. And, and they were lamenting. I just feel powerless in the midst of all of this stuff that's going on. It seems like it's beyond human ingenuity. It seems like it's beyond what I'm able to do. It feels like I'm bound. Do you see the language here that this is someone who doesn't identify as a Christian and is beginning to see the need for liberation, though they may not know what it's from or for. For God to save the world, for him to save you and me, he not only has to save us from ourselves, but from the gods, from the demons, from the unclean spirits, from the ways in which there is a personal darkness that has us enslaved into darkness and chaos. And that's why Psalm 82, I read from just a moment ago, also ends with, again, the most high God saying, you are gods, yet you shall die like men. Judgment against the, the, the presence of this personal evil at work within the world. It finally ends with a prayer to the most high God. Would you come, would you judge the gods of this world and free your people, free your image bearers to be what they were made to be again. Now, in order to keep moving on, 
um, and not spending too much more time just doing like a, a theology of, of the spiritual. This is scratching the surface. We're gonna keep moving here in a second. But if you're wanting to find more resources to study this more, maybe this is new or you're wanting to investigate this more, maybe with your discipleship group, uh, there's a series of videos and podcasts that are there in the notes from the Bible Project that I just spend some time there or, or reach out and start asking questions. There's also some books and stuff we can recommend. But the big idea is, okay, how does this, what does this, what does this have to do then? Okay, so we've got the most high language here, right? That's what we've just done. We spent 10, 15 minutes on just the most high because we read past it. And yet if we understand that this demon perceives Jesus as the son of, as a representative of the most high God, then Jesus is the answer to the prayer of Psalm 82, that the most high God would have his judgment on all the other spiritual beings, all the other gods of this world. To discover Jesus as the son of the most high God is to discover Jesus as the one who is supreme over all other spiritual beings and he has come to judge them. First John three uh, verse eight makes this explicit. When the apostle writes, the reason the son of God appeared, Jesus, was to destroy the works of the devil. When you think about why did Jesus come? Why the incarnation? Why Christmas? Why Easter? Why Good Friday? Why the death on the cross? Why the resurrection? Is we tend to go like, oh, to forgive me. And so I can go to heaven and like love Jesus forever. And I, my sins are washed away. Totally. That's half the story. For John, the primary, one of the main reasons why Jesus showed up was to destroy the works of the devil and all these spiritual beings that follow him. This is why in the story today, the demons freak out when they see Jesus. They know why he's here. They've read Psalm 82. They know that when the son of the most high arrives, when the most high God comes down, it is not gonna be okay for them. I love in Matthew's account of this story that, that what he adds to them is they ask Jesus, not just what are you doing here, but what are you doing here before the time? They know that Jesus is going to come to judge them and they're freaking out because it's like they got, you know, their alarm clock didn't go off and they didn't realize that Jesus was here now that's come to do it. So they're, free, they're terrified because they realize the time has come for them. See, for both these demons, but even for us, we have not discovered Jesus until we have discovered at the center point of the story of Jesus is his arrival as, a, as our liberator, as one who frees us from this, this enslavement that we find ourselves to. And so with Jesus as the spiritual liberator, as the son of the most high God, this is why when he shows up on the shore, it's like when you lift up a rock and all the little bugs run away, is it's the light that hits and everything scatters. But in this case, it runs up against him. It's a strong reaction because they know what he's here. That there's a liberation at work. There's a, it's like a military scene that plays out. You might've missed it, but I mean, just notice this whole narrative is highlighted with political and military language. One, just the fact that the demon's name is Legion, which was a uh, Roman military unit of 6,000 men. This talks about how many, I mean, there's the multitude of demons within this man, but don't miss the Legion. This is Roman military language. Similarly, many commentators have noticed how interesting it is that the Roman legion, the 10th legion that was taking military occupancy in and around Palestine or in and around the, the Desirines, the Decapolis, the 10 cities was the 10th legion, legion whose symbol, you know, on their flags that they would carry around was the image of a running boar. What do we see happening in the story? It's almost like this dramatic reversal where the political power 
is actually being seen as having some sort of connection to spiritual evil and turns all of its pride on itself and makes it's this ironic flip of the whole story. The political and military language here, the demon possessed man falling on his face in surrender before the son of the most high. It's a plea of no contest, begging not to leave the region. This is our headquarters. This is our space that we have. Jesus dismissing them, giving them permission. The language of them rushing down the hill is it's military language of when an army charges. You see, there's just all of this. There's, this is, this is, it's like D-Day. This is military that is, that is happening. This is liberation that's being done. This is not just a healing story. It is a story of victory and domination that's coming over spiritual evil. And so again, to discover Jesus is to take this first step into a larger world of the unseen and spiritual realities behind what is seen and what is felt behind our injustices, behind the injustices of this world. And so hear me, this doesn't cancel out, you know, the 12 weeks that we did on our justice series. What this story does is it helps us identify and see that our our aspects of putting things right, of caring for those that are being oppressed and hurt, that are vulnerable, is actually in some way also us contributing to, it's a, it's a form of spiritual warfare, us going after the effects and dominations of the enemy. Okay, so why does this all matter though, practically? Like, okay, cool, Ryan got to geek out about spiritual stuff today. That's great. What does this mean for me? Practically. The reality is, is that when you fail to see and to understand and to know that there is a spiritual evil behind, there's an enemy behind your enemy. What this ends up leading to is we end up fighting with people that we should be saving. When we don't see the enemy behind the enemy, what it is is we, we stop and we make our enemy what's right here in front of us. I, I was trying, I read it and I can't remember the name of the book this week. And so I just have like nonsense notes right here. But there was a group of sociologists that studied uh, progressive, more modern societies that have out, even with you know, Christians, that have gotten rid of the concept of the devil or demons or spiritual beings. And what they have found empirically being able to prove it is those that disregard any belief in spiritual evil have a higher rate of political divide, of violence, of, of fighting with one another. When you don't have an ultimate enemy, you will make the ultimate enemy one another. And so Jesus' story here shows up, someone that's showing up and not seeing the man screaming at him as his enemy, but he's able to locate the evil, the enemy behind the enemy. When we fail to see the enemy behind the enemy, we think injustice and evil can ultimately be solved by human ingenuity, by education, by therapy, and all these things are great, or, or by force, by violent force. Ephesians 6, 12, the apostle Paul says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. When you fail to see the enemy behind the enemy, you wrestle with flesh and blood. You're, okay, what, what human ingenuity, what education can we do? What therapy? Again, I'm not discounting any of those things, but we have to see the something behind those things. Or we think that violent force can finally deal with them. When we fail to see the true enemy, we become ignorant of our idolatry. We don't realize how manipulated and enslaved we are. We could go on, but to excuse or reject the spiritual dynamic of scripture, the way that Jesus sees the world is to reject Jesus. 
to reject the spiritual, the, the presence of spiritual beings is to take away the title that Jesus is the son of the most high God. It's to reject the vital aspect of his work that he's come to destroy the devil. There's a whole understanding of what Jesus is doing through his cross and resurrection that's summarized in this, these two Latin words of Christus Victor. It's this whole way of talking about what Jesus has come to do. Christus, Christ Victor, the victor, Christ the victor, that he is the one who's come to be victorious over spiritual evil. We rob the cross of its power and glory when we say, well, this stuff doesn't really happen anymore. This was just a guy with mental illnesses. And, and this is the thing that I've become increasingly aware of this week is when we lose this dynamic, this is what happens. The gospel becomes more or less therapeutic, just putting things forward. So the gospel, Jesus coming and his death and resurrection and all that language is more or less about your internal sense of shame or guilt or fear or feeling bad. And so Jesus died so you don't have to. It becomes therapeutic in nature. Now, there are there emotional implications of the gospel about our shame, about our fear, about our guilt. Absolutely, but it's half of the story. That Jesus has come to wage war against our enemy and our enslaver. And again, if this is something that you struggle with and don't believe, I would, I would just admonish you, don't write this off. Lean in, ask the good questions to identify and realize that you saying, I have a hard time with this. I don't see this. Or I disagree with this is to place yourself not only in the minority of how scripture is being said, but the minority of human history of how humans have seen reality and even the, a global minority of how humans all over the world see it right now. You are a global, historical, biblical minority. And so I'm not saying you're wrong, but I am saying maybe there's something more to this world than what you have been predisposed to think. So Mark has set this story before us as a new revelation of Jesus. It's a new thing that we're being invited into seeing because up to this point in Mark, we know Jesus is awesome. We know he's an incredible teacher. We know he's powerful. We know he's prophetic. We know he can heal. We may even know he's the Messiah. He is the promised anointed King of Israel. But now we have a new dynamic at work here, a new way of discovering Jesus, that he is the son of the most high God the awaited spiritual liberator who is able to break the bonds of death and injustice by going right to their source in demons, the devil, the gods of this world. He's dealing with evil at its source. Wherever you're at, this is what the story is claiming. And so as we wrap up, Mark gives three, three responses and invites you to question where you are. Three responses, who am I? And you might've seen if you had the notes there, or maybe if you're note, if you got your Bible and you like to take notes, is you can just circle the three instances of begging that happen here. It's really interesting. He uses the same word three times. Um, the first one is, let me go back to my beginning here. There in verse 10, the man with the unclean spirit begs Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. The crowd who hears about this begged Jesus to depart from their region. The man who had been uh, possessed by demons begged him that he might follow him. Do you see that? The three begging. It's these three responses to Jesus, the liberator. The first is the response of the demons. The demons beg Jesus, do not torment us. You would only beg Jesus of this if you knew that this is what he had come to do. This language of torment uh, coming out of the Greek that Mark's writing in is the language, not torment sounds like he's got, you know, pitchforks and he's poking them and, you know, torture or whatever. The language is it's just to subject someone to punitive judicial procedure. 
to enact punishment for evil that had been done, to judge them. So to torment them is to say, uh, Psalm 82, what, you, what, what the, pro, what the uh, psalmist wrote about you coming to do, to judge the gods of this world, which is us. Well, don't, we're just, please, not yet. And so they're begging with him, don't torment us, but, but send us into the pigs. Again, we get a note of the parasitic reality of these spiritual beings that need to have some kind of host that they almost can't exist on their own. They have to latch on to something that God's created to make it evil. And so they're actually given what they want. Jesus gives them over to these pigs, but in this comedic and strange reversal, it actually ends up leading to their destruction and their shame in the end. They're given what they want, but it destroys them. Now to clear something up really quick, the pigs dying was never part of Jesus's deal. Some people think that Jesus is like anti, you know, Peter or something like that. And Jesus is like, yeah, kill the pigs or whatever. If you just read the story, Jesus is, the, he created, you know, his, it was him that created the pigs. I don't think he necessarily delights in the pigs being killed just for this reason. The pigs dying is not part of the deal. And so it wasn't Jesus that did this. But we found that even the demons, when they were latched onto the man caused what? Self-harm. And so it seems as though the way that these demons impact is through destructive, suicidal, self-harming thoughts and it overwhelms the pigs. And like lemmings, they run off the side. So it wasn't what Jesus did to them, but what the demons did. But what's crazy is that we see in this story, Jesus's treatment of legion in him coming to judge, but then giving them what they want, but that becomes their destruction is the entire story of what's gonna happen in Jerusalem in a few years on his cross and resurrection. Colossians 3 or 2, uh, the apostle Paul reflecting on this just puts it so powerfully because he's referring to the implications of what Jesus has done for us. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. There it is, the forgiveness of sin. That's the gospel stuff that we know, but don't stop there. This he set aside, Jesus did, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Do you see, we can't separate the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection and being made alive and Jesus's liberation from the spiritual powers. I love the language there of putting them to open shame. It goes back to the Roman process of when a general would be victorious in war, all of the prisoners that he has that when he came back home into his city, it would be a parade with a general leading and all of those who had lost in the battle, bound and shackled, following him in shame. Paul says that post-resurrection, this is the reality of these spiritual beings. He has subjected them to ridicule and shame as we watch them being carried behind Jesus. Jesus has come to be our liberator, forgiveness of sins and new life, but also to defeat our greatest enemy. Now, the question is though, I'm not a demon. You're not a demon. You may think your kids are demons, but they're probably not demons. So why would Mark put it here? And why would I bring it up? I put this here because I think there's a reality where some of us, maybe those of us that don't identify as a Christian, or maybe you follow Jesus, but you tend to think that this is the way Jesus sees you. You think, you know, I'm not a demon, but I feel like God sees me as one that his whole relationship to me is torment and destruction, that he has come to enact punishment and judgment on me and maybe not put me into pigs, but to throw me into destruction and death. None of us here are the demon. 
That's part of the story in showing the separation that, that Jesus, even though you may be possessed by demons, is that Jesus, by his power, you, you, are never, you are never in the place of the demons. But you may be the crowd, is the question that he says before us. Did you notice the crowd here has the most interesting response? Jesus frees this man that had been living among the mountains and the rooftops for quite some time, and they beg him, what? Not do more. Hey, you know, my mother-in-law, she's crazy. Can you cast it out of her? Or my, my aunt, she's over, or, you know, my, my kids, can you, you know, exercise them? They don't do that. What do they do? They, they, they start begging Jesus to leave. They are terrified of this. They are afraid of him. Not least because of the economic implications of his arrival. The loss of these 2,000 pigs would have been an economic loss affecting the entire region. I did the math this week and it's thousands of pounds of bacon that has just been lost into the Sea of Galilee. They have lost money and now there's going to be economic repercussions for months and even years to come because of the loss of these pigs. When Jesus brings spiritual liberation, it brings real world impact. And that real world implications on us and our lives and on our money can often cause us to beg him to leave. Jesus is uncomfortable. Stories like this remind us that Jesus is not to be tamed. He is not your cosmic therapist. He has come to wage war against evil. And those, that war is going to have huge fallout on the way that you live your life and on the way that you see things. And see, we don't want this. We don't want Jesus to mess with our stuff, with our lives, with our money with our honor, with our worldview. We wanna leave the spiritual stuff out of it. We want Jesus just to kind of give us what we want and move on. The danger here is that the crowd is actually given what they want. Just like the demons, they are given what they want. Jesus leaves and they remain arguably unchanged in their deception and ultimately in their death. Though it pertains to the man I think I can bring it here as we talk about the crowds is the terror of one word back at the beginning in talking about the man. I've been thinking about this word all week long. In verse three, it says that the man lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. That word anymore is terrifying to me because what this notes is that the man's crazy possession scratching himself up on the rooftop, screaming all night long, living among the dead, naked and ashamed, that this was not the, a thing that happened, but it was a trajectory and process of slowly falling deeper into his deception that finally has reached the volume at 11, the ultimate. The fear of any more should be honest. It should have been on this crowd. It should have been there that, that if we continue in this enslavement in our deception to these demons is that we follow them into death and destruction. The end result is for these crowds without them turning and seeing their need for liberation is, is, is judgment as they follow in suit with the demons. C.S. Lewis has remarked that judgment is God's way of saying thy will be done when we refuse to say thy will be done to God. The death and destruction is God handing us over, giving us what we want, our destruction, our deception, and our death. It's what we get when we choose our freedom, which is actually our slavery over divine liberation. Mark sets the crowd before us to ask us, are we the crowd? But he also sets before us the example of the man. 
the man who experienced this liberation, who is now clothed and in his right mind. He, like uh, Paul wrote, has now been made alive together with him. The evil parasite has been purged and now is without of him. And so what does he beg Jesus? He begs Jesus to follow. He wants to follow Jesus. But interestingly, he's the only one in this story that's not given what he wanted. And the question is why? Jesus has a bunch of not worthies following him. The, the story from the week before makes that evident. They don't even know who he is, it seems like. They can't even get to a storm without freaking out because they seem to have no faith. The big idea here is that this man is a Gentile, is not Jewish. And so this isn't like some kind of racism that Jesus is doing, but Jesus identifies that his main task is first and foremost to enact his victory over the gods through and happening in Jerusalem and in and among the creator God's people, Israel, and move outward from there. And so he gives this man a greater task of sharing what the Lord has done to go tell your friends or just in the Greek that he's writing and just tell your own people. He tasked this man with this incredible, this challenge and task of being a forerunner and really laying the kindling of who Jesus is and what he has done. That in just a few years after Pentecost, after the sending of the spirit and the resurrection of Jesus and his death, that then would light. And it led to the early church spreading at such an incredible rate into these Gentile and non-Jewish territories. And it seems as though that spread came from instances like this where people began to tell of what Jesus had done for them and who Jesus was. And what's so profound is this story ends with a little play on words that Mark reveals that Jesus being the son of the most high God is actually even more profound than that. Jesus did not permit him to come, but he said to him, you know, go home to your friends, tell them, listen, how much the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he goes away and began to proclaim the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. Did you see the switch? Jesus says, go tell the Lord, go tell everyone what the Lord did for you. And he hears that and goes, I'm gonna tell everyone what Jesus did for me. In this man's perception, Jesus is the son of the most high God who is in some way the most high God. He is the one who is supreme over all of creation. And as such, does is merciful and is good and comes after us. No one is too far for his mercy. And so Mark would ask us, who are you in hearing this story? Do you think God sees you as less of a human and more of a demon? How and in what ways are you prone to be the crowd? What does it mean for you to live clothed and in your right mind to go and tell your people? What does it mean to receive and discover Jesus as the son of the most high God?